JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. Former assistant under Gene Cady, former collegiate head coach. He's doing a great job with the Big Ten Network. They're not booing. They're yelling Bruce. Bruce Weber is with us now. Hello, Bruce. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Uh, fun weekend in Chicago. Uh, chaos. Uh, basically chaos except for Purdue, who's been pretty consistent. <laughs> And uh, just like the season one, it was just an amazing season with so many close games. And uh, every time you thought you could predict what was going to happen in the Big Ten, it sure didn't happen, whatever you predicted. You know, it's funny you mentioned that, too, because it seems like that the rest of the college basketball landscape is like the Big Ten, where from top to bottom, it seems like that everybody's got a shot. And that's kind of how I vision, even with the one scenes in mind here. That's how I vision this NCAA tournament. The, the landscape is very even, I think, going into this week. Yeah, I would totally agree. I think that's why you had so many teams all jumbled up in basically every league, especially, you know, you had your one or two. And then then after that, um, it was, uh, you know, just, you know, a, a group of five or six teams in almost every league that, you know, were near 500 or close to 500. They seem to have big wins and, and it made it tough on the committee, uh, you know, that, that balance. And, you know, I, I have been a long time advocate of adding teams to the tournament. And for me, it's, you know, one is the student athlete. There's, you know, no better experience to be part of than the NCAA tournament. And so the more student athletes, we, you know, we get part of that. And then as a coach or a former coach, um, you know, it's about keeping their jobs. And, you know, if you can get another, you know, 10 coaches, get another, another longer contract, I, I'm all for it. So it's, uh, you know, but, I'm not sure that's going to change, and there's a lot of a lot of sad places right now, including uh, Coach Peichel at Rutgers. That was uh, that was a little bit of a shocker, I think, to everybody at the network. Yeah, I'm. I want to get your point because I wanted to go there too because it seemed like everybody, everybody that does one of these brackets, had Rutgers, if not firmly in, at least uh, comfortably in, in a lot of points. How shocked were you to learn that they weren't going to be a part of this yesterday? And I'm just listening to Mike DeCourcy and the, the, you know, the people that do this for a living, Andy Katz, the guys that study it constantly, and and they all seem pretty confident. I, I it, Mike DeCourcy, after it was over last night, he, I think it was like almost 90% of the brackets had Rutgers in that out of like 200 of guys that do it for a living, and um, 
you know, so it was it was a little it was it was a surprise. I thought them winning a game in in Chicago and then playing Purdue down to the to the wire, you know, gave them a nice boost and showed that they are capable and um but it didn't happen. So they're going to have to be in NIT. I'm sure their guys are disappointed and uh you know, and you can just, you know, you can I'm sure they'll look back. There were lots of lots of opportunities that that slipped by for them. So Bruce Weber of the Big Ten Networks on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Um, it's funny yesterday because when Zach Eady got a foul call and it was just, I, I guess, a coincidence. Um, at the time, CBS kind of got a shot of Gene Katie, your former boss, and he was doing a, a Gene Katie thing with, oh, yeah, whatever, like that. It was That was a classic moment, I thought, in that Big Ten Conference <laughs> tournament was his reaction to a foul call against the Boilermakers right on cue yesterday. Yeah, it was great to have Coach Katie. I got a chance to to be around him uh, all three days and hang out with him a little bit in the hotel on Saturday night. And obviously, you know, I, I mentioned on the, the network yesterday in the pregame, you know, you know, it, I'm there because of coach Katie, Matt's there because of coach Katie. And, and, uh, you know, we both, we both uh, were are part of his tree and, you know, he, he did a great job of, teaching us about winning basketball, you know, building that toughness and togetherness. And that's what Matt has done an unbelievable job at Purdue, you know, get using that same model and then adding his little twist to it, including one of the best big men. He's, he's the big man coach. There's no doubt about that. And uh, he's done a great job with that. And, you know, I, I had a chance to vote for national coach of the year. And one of the things, and I, I, I pick Matt because of what the the consistency they had, where people saw him playing with freshman guards. Uh, I, I think he's done unbelievable, and I know Coach Katie's very very proud that of his success, and he'll he'll be cheering him on this weekend. I, I would think. Hey Bruce, in a basketball world that no longer, or if it does, rarely covets the big man, the low post big man that we know it to be. Um, why does Matt do that? And then how big in the equation is it on his bench, Brandon Brantley been with the guys evolving into better players, big man capabilities well, like that? You know, first, Matt, I think he was, you know, when he, you know, you're putting your program together. And we've talked about this quite a bit. And, and it, it started way back when we were at SIU. And, uh, you know, Matt is my assistant. And uh, Dana Altman, um, you know, at Creighton, he he did some things. He he played this 2-2-1 press back to his zone. And he ran this, this spread offense. And, and I just said, Dana, you never did this before. Why did you do it? He said, I had to do something different. Uh, to you know, to make a mark in the league, something that other people don't see all the time, and and it, it'll make it tougher for them to deal with. And and I think Matt took a little bit of that, and also who who is you know when if you were competing the last ten years, who are the main programs that you're competing with, and you know in the Big Ten, the the ones that have been successful, obviously Michigan State, Tom Izzo. You know, from Bo Ryan to Greg Gard at Wisconsin, Ohio State has been, you know, you would say those guys have been successful. And they all, for the most part, had pretty good big men. So I think Matt just tried to, you know, between making his own mark and, and getting a big guy and, and 
putting, you know, he's done some really nice things of how to feed the post and his actions to get it to them and all different angles and disguises it with a lot of different looks and, and then just kind of how you're going to compete with the, the guys that have been the most successful in the league. And he felt that was a way to do it. So Bruce Weber, the big 10 network with us. If you have one concern at the top of your list regarding the one seed Boilermakers in this tournament, where is that? What is that? Well, I think just the, you know, this athleticism and, and ball pressure, um, any team that can, you know, get after them a little bit, take them out of their sets. I think that would be the thing that would be, uh, you know, a worrisome. And then that's when, they, you know, at times they've struggled. And I, I kind of laugh because, you know, oh, they they went five and five down the stretch. Well, they lost that Maryland, who everyone else except one team, I think, you know, lost there. And, um, and, and you know, and then they had, you know, other tough road games and, uh, obviously, Indiana got them, but at home and you know played very well. And some some of that just as matchups. And so I, you know, everyone's all worried about them slipping. And you know they just they've been so consistent. And they did. I guess you lost a few. I guess you're slipping. But they did win the league by three, three. I think three games. And they also won the tournament. So they've been as consistent as anybody. And as I said before, he's done an unbelievable job. Here's the one thing, and I, I want to get your, as a former coach, your opinion on this. I, I think, obviously, shooting the three is so incredibly important, and we think about that, Bruce, in terms of offense. But I also think about it in terms of defense, and here's why. Because, to me, there is nothing more dangerous and nothing that can bury you more in a game than an offensive rebound and a kick out to somebody stepping into a three-point shot with a scrambled defense. I think that, to me, rebounding on your defensive end is more important because of that aspect now more than ever. Would you agree? I think it's important. There's no doubt. And that's one, if you look at Purdue's stats, one of the most successful things they do is rebound, not only defensive rebounding, but also offensive rebounding. And I thought Mason Gillis uh, in the tournament was relentless on the boards. Obviously, Zach gets gets his share also, um, you know. So that and you know it, it and and first also gets some rebounds. So that that makes them tough with offensive rebounds, and they've done a good job of controlling the defensive end. But uh, that's there's no doubt that's that's a big weapon. Um, and the and and if you get the threes going. Um, you know, it, it changes games. There's no doubt about it, and that's part of Penn State's success. I, I mentioned before the game yesterday on our pre preview show, that pregame show, that I was I really thought the the four games in a row, the you know, shooting is about it starts with your legs, and I thought their legs may be gone, and um, they just not they didn't shoot it as well as they had done all the rest of the tournament, even. Even Pickett inside the paint, he was just a little short on everything. I think they just kind of ran out of leg strength, and that makes a difference in shooting. So Bruce Weber of the Big Ten Network size up Indiana as a four seed, and they start out against the 13 seed Friday night at Albany, New York, against Kent State, a team that is beyond legit, a very good squad. Is it all kind of what we talked about all season long with IU, Bruce? Is it can Trace Jackson Davis get some consistent support? Is that's what it's all about to you? Yeah, I, I I would say so. You know, that's with every team. It's 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 Purdue with Zach Eady, right? You know, you are the other guys going to make the open shots, and 
or be able to take care of the basketball. I, I think that's it's important. Um, I really thought they unbelievably uh, turn around from that stretch in early January. Uh, Trace Jackson called Davis called the team out, and then Coach Woodson called them out, and they changed. And their defense was so good. Um, I thought that really carried them, and their defense created transition and some offense. And just the, the last week or so, I, you know, it seems like everybody in the country, including themselves and a lot of other teams, and we talked about Purdue, you know, everyone's had their ups and downs, and they've had a little bit of a down cycle. And uh, but they're still very good. But it, it would help. I, I, you know, like at at Purdue, Galloway was so good, so tough, and. You know, just didn't get much done uh, the last couple of days in the tournament. And, you know, you you need your best players to play well, but you also need your role players to play their role. And and that that's that's an important thing with anybody. So, it you know, it should be fun to watch. But Kent State is a good team. There's no doubt. I, I've talked to a couple people in the, in the, in the Mid-American Conference, coaches, guys I know, and and they, as you mentioned, they're legit. They, if you look, they played Houston really close. They played Gonzaga close. Um, uh, so they, they, they played some big boys and competed with them. And and you get in the tournament, obviously, um, you know they, it, it, you know anything can happen, as we we all know, as part of March Madness. Uh, they do have some big bodies that can. You know, bang with with Trace. Obviously, it's uh, you know not an easy task for anyone because he's so mobile and so athletic. But I think for them, as a you know, looking at Kent State, they do have enough bodies and fouls to kind of you know take their toll and probably post trap them when they get that opportunity. I loved it on Friday in the post game when you asked Trace, and that was your question. You asked Trace about you know that signature moment during the season where uh, they had he had you know a players meeting, and then you know Woodson he was calling everybody out. Mike Woodson was calling everybody out. That that seems like a genuine relationship right there between fourth year player, star of the team, and head coach of of give and take, which sometimes I guess you don't see. Yeah, there's no doubt, and, and I think that's keys to any team. Um, you know, the locker room, the the players wanting it, the leadership. Um, those are such important things, and um, when you have that relationship with your best player or your best players, and and they're they're the hardest workers, and um, and they're great examples, then everybody jumps on board and. Uh, obviously not only did Trace call the guys out, but he let them all jump on his back and he carried, he's carried them and, and they all, and they all produced. So it, it was fun watching their progression. And um, obviously they're, you know, for them, their two wins over Purdue were really impressive. It's uh, Bruce Weber of the big 10 network. Congratulations. Uh, I know you guys are still going strong right now, but what a great first year. I mean, you fit, like a glove right in there. Always an enjoyable watch. Well, I appreciate it. Just, just, I, you know, for me, I want to have fun and enjoy it and um, at least give a coach's perspective and, and, and help protect the coaches. <laughs> so everyone's, everyone's <laughs> questioning them. You know, it's just, uh, you know, it's the old question. Did you ever think about shooting free throws? No, I would have never thought about shooting free throws in practice. I oh my goodness, you know. So um, does Matt you know, ever work on the press? That's one. Yeah, yeah. He does he ever work on the press? On the press? I, yeah. 
I laughed because I had Purdue's first game against Wisconsin Milwaukee, and they pressed. Yeah. And and I and I went through a couple practices before, um, you know, before that game, just so I could be, you know, be around it. And I, I was a little nervous doing my first game, and I wanted to be prepared. So. But Matt, that's all he did was work on press breakers. So that that's way back then. So it's uh, you know it it definitely has been something they they've struggled with a little bit. And um, you know, but I think Keith they they've got to just adjust to it and just somebody's got to take over and and take care of that ball. But it you know that's with every team and and the tight games. You know, a lot of craziness happens in those last couple of minutes of games. Hey, Bruce, great job. Thank you for jumping on today. Enjoy the tournament, and we'll do this again soon. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you. Andy Moore, Automotive Group Potline from The Athletic. He's helping us cover thoroughly right now the initial hours of NFL free agency. He is Zach Kiefer. I do want to double back, Zach, to Friday and that news regarding Carolina. I was not an ounce surprised. Not an ounce surprise because I would have been more surprised, shocked, actually, if Ballard would have given up anywhere near that hall to get to number one. I just happen to think right now they're satisfied where they are at four. Yeah, you're on it, John. That's pretty much where they're at. And whether the fan base likes it or hates it, they, they just didn't feel like it was worth that hall to move up to that spot for one of these guys. And I think at this point, you kind of got to buy into that a little bit. I don't know what your show would be like right now if the Colts had made that trade, but Carolina gave up a whole lot, man. They gave up a really good receiver, two ones and two twos. And I don't think the Colts see a lot of gap, a lot of separation between quarterbacks one, two, three, and four. I don't think in their minds, at least, that any one of them is a no doubt walk in the door guy, you know, that's going to lead your franchise from day one. And they didn't want to. They didn't want to overreact. They didn't want to act out of desperation. But all that being said, what the heck do they do at quarterback now? You know, I feel like their options got a little bit worse Friday evening. Yeah, I just thought all along because I, I heard this back even toward the tail end of the season, and, and maybe this either a ends up being wrong or b it fluctuates and changes because of the time that is passing. But I had heard that they liked Will Levis. They thought they could get Will Levis at four. Thus, that's where we are right now. What do you think? Yeah, and if you go back, so this is what happens on social media, right? So Ballard in his season-ending press conference, he's asked by Kevin Bowen. He says, look, KB says, look, if there's a quarterback at the top that you really want, are you willing to go get him? And Ballard says, no doubt. I'll trade whatever I got to. I'll go get him. That doesn't mean he's going to do it. That doesn't mean he's identified that guy. And then he tempered his words on March 1st when we talked to him at the Combine. He said, yeah, I'll go get him if I really want, but I'm not so sure I have to. I'm not so sure we can't get a guy at four. Now, maybe that's just him just posturing. Maybe that's just him saying, you know, I kind of want a little bit more leverage at four as opposed to everyone out there assuming we're so desperate to get a quarterback that we're going to trade the farm to go up. But my sense is, on Friday night, the Colts were not overly ticked off that they had been passed up by the Panthers. And now that they're essentially, ideally, in theory, the third team picking in the top four picks that needs a quarterback. They didn't feel like their position changed all that much. Now, maybe that's just them spinning it. But the reality is they're at four, and there's two teams ahead of them in Houston and Carolina that are probably going to pick a quarterback. And I don't know if that's a sure thing. Houston reportedly was in on Jimmy Garoppolo. Garoppolo's not going there to sit. He's going there to start. So I don't know how that plays out in Houston in their mind. 
a lot of people think Houston's going to get Bryce Young, but um, I don't know what Carolina's going to do, but this is going to be fascinating because the Colts seem to be pretty comfortable at four right now, and I'm not sure the I'm just not sure the fan base is comfortable at four. Yeah, and with Garoppolo signing with the Raiders, that does take out one of the trade up above possibably right. to Arizona That's type true. of options there. So, and I I heard the same thing regarding you know the Texans and, and Garoppolo, which was a little bit surprising. But I, I would fully expect again that you're going to get back to back quarterbacks. Uh, to me though. I, 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 that's what I think Ballard is doing. That doesn't necessarily mean that I agree with it. I, I just think Stroud is going to be the best quarterback in this draft, and I think that Carolina's acting accordingly toward that, and I'm going to be bummed out if that ends up taking shape. I just think that there is a difference, and I know people say he's from Ohio State. Ohio State quarterbacks never play well at the next level. All that crap. I think he has got the skill set that is necessary to be a high-level quarterback of the NFL, regardless of what anybody else says. Yeah, I'm not buying the old Ohio State thing as well. That, that's true until it's not. And I liked what I saw of him at the combine. And I said this last week before, before Carolina made the move. His footwork was really good. His motion was smooth and easy, and obviously he's very accurate. He called himself a ball placement specialist. That wins in this league, and that's accurate from what he's seen on the tape at Ohio State. And it doesn't hurt that he had his best game in college against the best team in the country in that national semifinal against Georgia. The other thing I'll mention about Will Levis, and and not the greatest pocket presence, didn't really win a lot at Kentucky. They're obviously in the SEC, so it's tougher to do that down there with a team that's not as stacked as some of the other teams. But there's a coach down there, there's the defensive coordinator, who used to be the linebacker's coach for the Colts and Brad White. And he's with Will Levis every day for the last two years. Seen him in practice every day. Brad White is still tight with Chris Bowden. So that's a really good resource the Colts can lean on to understand the nuance and the context behind Will Levis's somewhat disappointing senior season, right? I mean, he was probably better a year ago than he was this past season. And there's a lot that goes into that. He was playing through a little bit of injury, the offensive line issues, the skill position issues, the coordinator issues. All that's real. Some guys elevate above that in college and some don't. Levis left some questions to be answered. But the reality is he's got a monster arm. And you've seen, you know, you've seen these guys like Jalen Hurts, who had an up-and-down college career, one more than Will Levis for sure, but under the tutelage of Shane Steichen, really improved his accuracy, really improved as a pocket passer in this past year. And then Steichen's sort of the wild card here. What does he want? What is he looking for? And what can he do to elevate a passer? It's not just who you draft. It's what you do with them the first couple of years. Some teams really screw it up. Some don't. That's going to be a huge factor in this that no one's really talking about right now. You know, Zach Kiefer of The Athletic joins us. Chris Ballard is kind of like me at Kroger. I go directly to the tags that say, oh, wow, because I know that they're going to be discounted a great deal. Is that what we saw with Tyquan Lewis being brought back with an injury discount, it seems? And I know that they like him. I know that he, when he was healthy, played well. But was that a part of an injury discount they were taking advantage of here? Yeah, for sure. And and they got him done yesterday before Tyquan could negotiate with other teams. Not that there was going to be a big market. Look, two straight years. He's ended the season on injury reserve. I mean, that's that's a concern, right? How much are you going to bet on a player like that? Good rotational player. They like that he can play inside and out on the defensive line. And and look, if it's free agency, you better bet that Chris Powell is going to sign a defensive lineman, usually one of his own. That's really his M.O. That's what he's going to do. Um, I wouldn't expect any fireworks today 
You know how this goes. The fan base has learned over time. This is usually how it goes. Not a lot of great players available this year with the exception of Lamar Jackson. Some good players, no doubt, but not a lot of great players. And you have to remember the free agency, the salary cap is going up, which means teams are able to keep they're able to keep some great players a little bit easier than they have in the past. And a lot of teams are renegotiating deals right now to free up some salary cap space to keep those premier players. So there's not quite as many on the market in terms of the last couple of years. And, and I just don't think there's – I mean, what do the Colts need? Like, I, I think they should sign a receiver. They're not going to sign one today. That's not how they do business. But they're going to wait for the market to settle a little bit to see if they can afford one. The, the news that hasn't broken yet that's a little concerning, a little wondering on my part is, is why they haven't cut Matt Ryan. It's, maybe they have behind the scenes. It just hasn't leaked out yet. Um, essentially, <laughs> yeah. the deadline is Friday, and I just right. see no reason why he would be on the roster come Saturday morning. Yeah, I completely agree on that. Zach Kiefer is with us. So you look at what they wouldn't give up to move up to number one. So there's absolutely no way in hell they would be in anywhere near on Lamar Jackson here, right? Yeah, I really don't think so, John. And I've thought about it, and I've talked to some people, and I, I, I really think it's very unlikely for a lot of reasons. Um, for one, the, the Ravens are a really smart organization, and they're essentially letting other teams set the market for Lamar Jackson, their franchise quarterback. Now, he's a special player, man. He would jumpstart this city in a second, right? I mean, 26 years old. He's already got an MVP. He's like 45 and 16 as a starter, something ridiculous. But there's a very real concern about out there about his injuries, and he's finished two years on the injured list. He's not been available. Does an owner, does Jim Irsay, want to spend a quarter of a billion dollars on a player who might only play 11 or 12 games a season? Now, he's dynamic, and I think he's a better throw than he gets credit for. But his style lends itself to some questions, and – that's not to knock the way he gets it done because we saw in Baltimore a couple years ago on a Monday night, this dude literally take over a game and win a game essentially by himself with Mark Andrews that the Ravens had no business winning against the Colts. But there, there's a very real concern among owners in the league, it seems like, that they don't want Deshaun Watson to become a commonality. They want that to be the anomaly. They're not going to start giving out guaranteed contracts to quarterbacks because that's just going to really hurt teams' leverage moving forward. And owners don't answer to anybody. They answer to themselves, and I don't think that's going to happen. So, essentially, the Ravens are allowing Lamar to negotiate with other teams to set the market. And he'll probably end up back on that, that, that franchise tag that he's on, $32.5 million. They don't usually let really good players walk out the door. The Ravens are really smart. This is going to be fascinating, almost unprecedented in NFL history. But I just don't see the Colts shelling out that kind of money at this particular stage for that player with some concerns about his injury and also maybe if his style can last for this long. I'd be interested to see if he goes back to Baltimore, uh, his level of motivation compared to, let's just say, hypothetically, if he ended up someplace else. You know what I mean? It it seems like that this this soap opera, regardless with him, is far from over. Yeah, that's another thing. And and the one thing we, we haven't gotten in this whole process is, is Lamar, right? Like, where is he at? And it's interesting because he doesn't have an agent, and a lot of people know this. Like, agents have a lot of value. Like, agents are the shield between the team and the player. And I'm sure these negotiations haven't gone anywhere recently, partly because there isn't an agent to sort of mediate the team's demands and the team's wants and the team's offers 
with the player. Like, I think they very obviously value Lamar and they want him back, and they made him a really sizable contract offer last year that he obviously turned down. I just feel like this is just such a unique situation in NFL history. This player of this skill level at this time of his career essentially being on the open market, not quite, but the Ravens essentially saying, okay, if you don't like what we're offering, you can go talk to other teams and and then come back to us. I think you're right. I think a part of the Ravens are a little scared if they give him that much money, what happens? And if another team does, does he have a little bit more motivation? This is going to be fun to watch. I don't think he ends up in Indy. There's just a lot of things that would have to happen for that to happen, including Jim Irsay shelling out, let's just say, $200 million immediately that would have to go into escrow to pay Lamar Jackson's guaranteed money. That's a lot of money. And I know Jim Irsay is a very, very wealthy man, but the Colts have never done anything quite like that. And they're not the biggest spenders in the league. And I know everyone's working with the same salary cap, but the Colts structure their deals in a very particular way. And we've talked with Mike Bloom, who runs the Colts' contracts behind the scenes. Um, they have a, Essentially, they have a limit that they need to spend each year. And there's a reason they don't shell out a ton of guaranteed money early. And their deals are very, very particularly constructed so the team has a lot of flexibility and there's not a lot of dead cap money um, down the line. They is, don't that why, is that why we see rarely a renegotiation or a redoing of the contract to save cap space? Is that because people ask me all the time why we never see that? Why is somebody not right. redo their contract? Is that because they, they worked that on the front end is what you're saying? That's also part of it. But part of it is because the Colts don't need to work out. They don't need to renegotiate contracts because they're not often in a situation where they need salary cap space, at least under Ballard. Now, look, they've, they've signed bad contracts, and they've got situations where guys are not playing up to their contract, right? They're not immune to that, and they just won four games. So they're not doing everything right. But they often don't have a situation like they do right now with Matt Ryan, where they have a player who didn't meet his contract the year before, and they have a lot of dead cap money. They really rarely find themselves in a situation where they have signed the contract. Remember, they didn't, they didn't sign Matt Ryan to this contract. They traded for him and inherited it from the Falcons. Same thing with Washington and, and Carson Wentz last year. The Colts didn't pay any dead cap because they traded him. They, fu- they rarely script a contract that puts them in a bad position down the line. Hey, final quick thing here, and I see what's going on with Austin Eckler, and I do want everybody to understand he's three years older than Jonathan Taylor. He is 27 years old, but uh, certainly has been a weapon. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, in the handling of the uh, future extension, the contract situation of Jonathan Taylor, will there be that much back and forth in negotiations, or are they prepared to basically give Taylor – what they want, even though we're talking about a running back and that's not of the highest value around the NFL. Yeah, John, I, I asked that exact question, that exact question. And, and, and Chris Ballard didn't hesitate. And this is, you know, he doesn't lie about this stuff. And it, it doesn't help his leverage when he does either because he just came out and said it. I said, are you willing to pay Jonathan Taylor top dollar? He said, absolutely. And I said, even though he's a running back and I know how this league works and you know how this league works and, and look, the, the evidence speaks for itself. JT had an unbelievable season in 2021. We all saw 1,800 yards among the best players in football, right? What, what did it do for the Colts? Now, he carried them, for sure. They didn't even make the playoffs that year. That's how important the other positions are, quarterback and wide receiver. And even if you have a great historic year from a running back, I mean, JT had more yards than Edger and James had. And, and it didn't even get him in the playoffs. So there's a real concern on that part. But Chris Ballard's not hesitating 
He wants to sign Jonathan Taylor to a deal. It's not going to be as expensive as a receiver or quarterback, obviously, but it's going to be sizable, and he deserves it. He's a great player. I don't think the injury is going to play much into that. This is usually something that gets done in, in July or August, right before training camp, right before the season starts. But I don't think they have a lot of hesitation, and, and the reasoning is he's one of their best players, and he deserves it, and that's really how they do business around here. Zach Kiefer of The Athletic, and we'll also watch linebacker Bobby Okereke, where it's been rumored he'll end up ultimately playing for his old defensive coordinator, Matt Eberflus, in Chicago as a linebacking free agent. We'll follow that. Zach, we'll follow you as well, my man. I appreciate you coming on here today. Thanks, man. Have a good one. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline, he is, for the morning show, Kevin and Query, Jake Query. I'll double back because I know you want to bring up Bruce Hornsby and Ambrosia in just a second. But I'm curious, who, um, I just heard a, a spot that talked about IMS and the month of May and all that and Carb Day. And I know they've yet to make a Carb Day announcement. Is is Roger Penske, and, you know, if he, he spends a lot of money, right? But But is he kind of... For a guy that spends a lot of money, frugal, or can you say that about somebody that spends a lot of money? I don't know that you can say that, but I think that probably he is very, I think he's very astute from a business standpoint, so he's very conscientious of where that money is being spent and whether or not he considers it to be return on investment. I, you know, that that would be my, it's really hard to so say. So is he, is he really close to Chris Ballard's thinking as far as putting together a roster? Is it pretty close? That sounds like you just described Chris Ballard. The the thing that's that's hard is that Roger Penske, you know, he bought the largest sports entity arguably in the country like what, three months before the world shut down? Right. And so so then you're reaching into capital to keep that probably sustainable and then after that you've got to make up that capital somewhere. So it's really hard to assess all of it because it's just such an odd curveball. Whereas in Chris Ballard's case, I guess you could say that like Andrew Luck's retirement was an equally like odd curveball. However, <laughs> Andrew, Luck, he, Andrew Luck was the was Colts like, COVID. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Andrew Luck was the Colts COVID. That's right. Um, but, I shouldn't laugh. But here's the difference. Yeah. The difference being, you know, I mean, how long do you ride that? If you're the Colts, how long do you ride that excuse? And, you know, I mean, you're still coming out from from that at this point from an economic standpoint. But I think Roger Penske's evaluation of the Speedway is he has a great passion for, you know, the race and the automobile and the innovation and the Indianapolis 500 and the passion that fans have for it. And so I think he's assessing what, what you do in terms of getting people to appreciate the racing aspect of it more so of a focus than like the concert aspect of it i don't know that that's just yeah it seems you know um i don't know well, the legends they, they, they go pretty hard at the legends though yeah yeah and yeah. i mean because those you know, those hillbillies I, I they bring in aren't cheap they're not cheap hillbillies you know it's interesting because the you know penske entertainment is exactly that right entertainment and i right. think that they will i think eventually I guess what I'm getting at is I do think that eventually they will explore perhaps getting back into like when the Rolling Stones were at the Speedway, but that curveball of COVID from the get-go just set everything back, and I don't know that they've necessarily gotten back into that meeting table yet. Yeah. That's too bad, too. When the Rolling Stones played here in July, what was that, 2015, 2016? 
What year uh, was it? 2016 at minimum, oh, right? so because good. It was, it was great. Yeah. yeah uh, was, and now I think everybody was kind of hoping that that would. But, yeah, you're right. I mean. I mean, I'll never forget because it was 4th of July, and I took my uh-huh. mom. <laughs> my mom's like, I want to go see the Rolling Stones. So we went and took my mom, and, like, watching the Rolling Stones at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and seeing the fireworks of downtown going off in the background. I mean, it was just, it was very surreal, but it was super cool. I mean, it was super cool. And I remember thinking like, okay, you know, this is, this is doable clearly. I mean, they, you, it's a massive event, right? I mean, it's a massive venue. I yeah. mean, so, you know, you have unlimited real estate basically to do it. Uh, it was cool. I was, co- you know, uh, hopefully they'll do more, but I just think that that stuff all kind of went on the back burner when it was like, okay, right now we've got a, you know, just financially keep things afloat in terms of the series and the the venue and everything else. I think that's probably going to be the only time ever where Mick Jagger eats at Iozo's Italian Garden. That is exactly where he ate. That's right. Yeah. Um, probably so. I don't know when Mick Jagger will be back in Indianapolis for that matter. Do you think that Mick Jagger uh, had ever in his life uh, been served a meal almost underneath I-70? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you think you ever went to Cadillac Ranch, although that's not under I-70, right? What's that overpass? That's over a, there? Cadillac that's Ranch is underneath the train track. tracks, so it was. Yeah, that's just a railroad track, right? Was. Yeah. yeah, what's that place called now? Because you, you were down at uh, – did you guys go out and eat on Saturday night somewhere? Yeah, we went to – well, we went right across Noodle? the street from the – we went to Weber Grill and then we went to the Noodle. Ah, yeah. I don't know that it, is anything in Cadillac Ranch. Is yeah, there's something that? in there. I can never remember what it's called though. Is there? Okay. Yeah, I mean, there's something we went, in there. Um, it was funny. I, I I told Shannon, I go, let's just we'll just walk from the building. No, that's too far. Let's, let's park. <laughs> so we we parked at City. Jump over the. Yeah, jump over the guy taking a nap in the doorway. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. There's a couple of people, a couple of squatters that have taken over the arts garden. I'm like, guy, hey, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah my city way and walked on over. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about that. Um, it's funny. I don't buy into all these conspiracies about. Well, you know this. You know it. It. Um, to me, this is more Chris Ballard playing this the way that Chris Ballard normally would play it. And the fact that, again, my belief is that they have somebody hard targeted in this draft, a quarterback, that they know is going to be available. Now, I've mentioned that I believe that somebody is Will Levis. Agree with any of the above there? Uh, I 1,000% agree that I think Jim Irsay really likes Will Levis. I've heard that Chris Ballard likes him. Um, I have heard that Jim Irsay loves him. I haven't heard that from either of those two individuals specifically. So, you know, that that is obviously hearsay. However... And I'm going to defend Chris Ballard here, actually. Um, I believe that Chris Ballard looked at it and said, look, at the very least, if there are if they have targeted that there are four quarterbacks in this draft, at the very least, if you are drafting fourth, that means that you get the fourth of those four. I think that Chris Ballard, I truly believe this. I think Chris Ballard simply looked at it and said, you know what? I don't think the gap one to four in terms of the quarterback that we're going to get is worth the cost that it would cost to move up. And so we will let the chips fall and use the the assets that we have to build around whatever that quarterback may be. And whether or not, you know, I think we can probably safely at this point say that the one twos are going to be Stroud and young or young and Stroud, depending on which order you believe. And then after that, you know, Arizona's the curveball. 
If Arizona sticks at three, one would think that they do not draft a quarterback, and then the Colts have their choice between Richardson and Levis. And if Arizona trades out and somebody moves in there that needs a quarterback, then the Colts say, okay, then that means that we get our choice, or that we don't get our choice, but we get the other between Richardson and Levis. And if they feel that those two are not that great in terms of, when I say not too great, if they determine that the gap is not that great between the two of them, then you're happy with the fourth and you say, good to go because we held on to everything else moving into the draft. And I, I actually think while that is not sexy and while it's conservative and it doesn't make for great talk radio, I think in the end it's the responsible thing to do. I really do. And that's me saying that. He's been pretty critical over the years. But I do think that that's the responsible thing to do. Yeah, I, I think it also – and people say all the time, well, he's you know, he's on the clock right now. I mean, if things don't happen, he's going to be gone by the end of the year. I've said this. I think he's going to be around at least for the next three. People go, oh, man, really, three years? I do. I think it's going to be young quarterback year one. It's going to be evolving quarterback year two. And I think both of those seasons give him an obvious year number three. And that will be when he is on the win, lose, or go home type of deal here. Not in the first two. I mean, you know, I've always said the clock starts on a general manager when they draft a quarterback. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And at that point – and, and I don't bl- blame Chris Ballard at all for doing it the way probably they have the last few years because, again, John, to me the biggest question mark about this draft, and I don't know that anybody knows this answer, is this a draft where you have quarterbacks that are going to be taken probably one, two, and maybe even one through four? Is that because it is a draft that is rich in franchise quarterbacks? Or is that because it is a draft that has a bunch of franchises that need a quarterback? And there's a difference. There is a difference. And I don't know what that answer is. I don't know, you know, are we looking at another draft where it's going to be Achilles Smith, Joey Harrington? And, you know, that's possible, right? Or it could be one of those drafts. It could be the 83 draft all over again where you look at it and you go, man, Elway, Marino, you know, all these guys were in there. I, only time will tell that answer. But I just think if you are already sitting in the fourth position and it is known that there are four quarterbacks that could be guys that you draft in the first round, then you're in the better case to just sit where you are. Let the record reflect that only time will tell is a fantastic song by Asia in the 1980s too. Would well you done. say that their series or song is that or heat of the moment? Oh, it's heat of the moment. Oh yeah. And if you ever, if you ever wonder what year it was, they actually say in the song, and that, that, that in 1982. Oh, yeah. The disco hearts have lost its charm for you. The uh, the 40-year-old virgin, that film always made me mad because they made fun of that second, I think it was the second album cover of Asia, right? They made fun of that because uh, Steve Carell had that in his house framed up. I think, what are you nerds doing making fun of Asia here? I never liked that. <laughs> Wasn't Asia a supergroup? Yes, they were. Yeah, they were bits yeah. and pieces of of many. So I think once yeah. upon a time, part of them played. Was it the music mill that was up? Yeah, the music yeah. mill. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. And I did not go. I think I, I forget who it was. It wasn't all of them because I don't think a couple of them were any longer with us. But so my only like 1982. I probably told you this before. Like music mill type serendipitous run-in of 80s bands. I think I told like, when I interned in MTV in 1994, I was in Greenwich Village, and I, there was a just a bar. I'm like, it was, I'm with a guy that I interned with. And we're like, yeah, let's get a bar, a beer after work, whatever. 
and we go into this little tiny bar. I mean, literally, it was the size of the Alley Cat. We walk in, and there's a band playing, and there's a decent crowd in there. And I'm like, this is a decent crowd for a hole-in-the-wall bar in the middle of Greenwich Village, New York. And they start singing, and I'm like, this is a really good cover version of this song. And then I walk out, and I'm like, uh, who is it that's playing again? I'm like, Flock of Seagulls. <laughs> <laughs> they, play, they played Iran and whatever the other one is, Interspace, Interstate Love. What's oh, the no, uh, it, um, it was Space Age Love Song Space and Age Wishing. Song. Wishing I had a yeah. photograph of they you. They played yeah. like their four hits like consecutively for two hours and then packed up and left. I believe the lead singer is Mike Score. And there was a time, going back eight years, I looked into this too, going back eight years when we used to have Greene County backyard parties uh, back about eight, ten years ago, that you could get the flock of seagulls to play live in your backyard for $7,000. All you have to do is save Brooke Shields from drowning and you can pay to have them play at your birthday party. And you got to have a place where they can plug into the outdoor power so they can plug their scents in there. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is beautiful. They might have made seven grand that night at the hole in the wall hey, bar in Greenville. I would, I would today. I'd put, I'd get some investors to put together seven grand and bring them out to the backyard. That'd be a good time. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. That, yeah. no, that'd be cool. Yeah. Um, it's a Jay Query Morning Show, Kevin and Query, weekday morning, 7 until 10 a.m. It's here on The Fan. Did you think that either IU or Purdue got hosed by the way that they were inserted into this bracket in 2023? No, I think actually both of them got pretty decent draws, to be honest with you. I, I think Purdue, you know, Memphis is a little bit scary if Memphis faces Purdue in the second round just because of the way they guard and the length of the floor in which they're willing to pick you up to guard is an area that's given Purdue some problems. Um, and, you know, in Indiana's standpoint, you know, I just heard you talking. I mean, Kent State is no slouch, right? And and in the second round, you kind of got looming there. I don't know much about Miami, admittedly, but I saw Drake at the beginning of the year. I thought they were pretty decent. Um, but Indiana, to me, is intriguing because they're going to have to go. Both Indiana and Purdue have one thing in common, and that is that you know exactly what you're getting in the middle, and I think you can rely on getting that. What's going to be the key for both of them is what are you getting out of your backcourt? And, you know, Indiana's going to have to shoot the ball well. I mean, Galloway's going to have to come out of this whatever kind of mini slump he's been in. Miller Cop's going to have to shoot the ball. And I do like Jalen Hutchpino a great deal. And I think he's grown up a lot in the last month or so. Purdue, on the other hand, if Fletcher Lawyer doesn't re, you know, kind of rekindle whatever it was that he had going at the beginning of the year, then they're going to have to get some good play out of Mason Gillis or some of the guys that have stepped up for him, certainly in the Big Ten tournament. Here's what I think is most important this time of year, and I think it's magnified, Jake, because everybody is just on such, I believe, if not an even plane, they're in the ballpark of being on an even plane. I mean, everybody, for the most part, in this tournament. It is three-point shooting, and not just from your own team, but how you defend three-point shooting on the other end and I think because of that one of the most important aspects is how you handle your business on the defensive glass because nothing burns your ass more from three-point range than an offensive glass a rebound kick out to a wide open stepping into a three-pointer shoot that's a layup for all these guys that absolutely kills a team so i think the three-pointer is important but i think it's almost even more important in terms of how you do your business on the defensive glass to make sure you don't get that offensive rebound and kick out for three that buries teams i I would agree with that and the thing is and this is what's interesting about and this is why this tournament john i think is so wide open 
not just because there isn't necessarily the dominant all season long ranked number one team. I mean, if anybody, it would be, I would guess Purdue or Kansas will probably rank number one as, or Houston or ranked as, you know, number one as long as anybody this year. But, you know, Houston's a little banged up. Kansas has lost seven games, I think all of them by double digits. I mean, when they lose, they lose big. Purdue's lost a couple games that you wonder about going down the stretch. But the thing that makes it interesting as well is, and this is college basketball in 2023. Virtually every team, John, has a guy or two that if they catch lightning in a bottle and start knocking down shots from the outside, it can avalanche on you. And, you know, we saw that. Penn, hell, Penn State's a good example of it. I mean, Penn State has two of them. I was talking to somebody today that's like, look, Penn State's got two of those guys that can start hitting threes, knocking them down from the outside, and all of a sudden the team that you don't think a lot about because yep. they're well coached by Michael Shrewsbury, they're right there and they're hanging around. Look at them yesterday. I mean, Th- their look, offense Penn looks State, like a hyper offense, too. Uh, they have one guy that they have one guy that backs you down, and then other guys that stand out there and shoot threes. Yeah, that's exactly right. But you know what? And that's but that's today's college basketball, man. I mean, guys that that twenty years ago would you know would would have been locked down on playing like the power four or whatever it is, and now everybody can shoot from the outside, and you got to be able to contend with that, and you can't let guys get that open look, and in particular, to your point. You can't let them get an open look either on a on a last second in a possession shot or in a transition shot because that gets people juiced, man. And but that's what's going to be fun about it. And Indiana, that's I think that's the challenge for both Indiana and Purdue is I don't know that because of where their scoring comes from, they don't necessarily have the guys that can start scoring in those bunches and keeping up pace. So you got to try to slow it down a little bit. And to your point, you can't let teams get a second juice out of three-pointer on a possession. Jake Query joins us. To me, that's just always such a killer. And normally that second time around, they're going to hit it. And if you give somebody three chances at it, you might as well go ahead and sing yourself a lullaby because it is all over after that because they're going to hit it after that many times. Jake Query joins us. Who's your final four? Man, I've done like, you know, what's interesting is every bracket I do, I look at it and I go, yeah, that surely can't be the final four, right? You know what I mean? Like, it's there's no team that jumps out at you. I, I do think Alabama is really talented and they might have the best player in the tournament. Um, so I've got them. I I think Indiana's got a really good chance. Um, I can't remember who I had exactly. I had Texas going in and I, I'll tell you the team. So it's easier for me to say the teams that I think can make a run. I do think, laugh if you want. I think Kentucky could be a surprise. So I would say Kentucky's in that mix as well. And I, I hate saying that because I hate Kentucky. Why, why does Kentucky – last I saw Kentucky against Vanderbilt, they look like a stinking disaster. What's with Kentucky? Yeah, I mean, but this is the kind of team for Kentucky that all of a – you know, this is the kind of Kentucky team that shows up, right, is all when you least expect it and you think they're a disaster. But I'm looking at – I filled out a bracket today just kind of yep. screwing around, and I have Texas, UCLA, Marquette, and Alabama. That is the lamest sounding Final Four ever, right? <laughs> so you got you got a, a, a two, uh, two one two one. Is that what you got? Uh, well, Indiana's a four, right? Oh no, I have Texas. You're right. I have, yeah. I have Texas over Indiana. Yeah, you said you said uh, Texas is a two. You said UCLA. UCLA is a two. That's right. Marquette's a two. Marquette's and a two. One. And Mark, yeah. So I mean, that sounds like I realize I Kentucky. I guess I have Kentucky getting beat by Marquette. I I think listen, I think Purdue I do think Purdue is in pretty good shape if they can get by Memphis, but that Memphis game scares me and I think they can be upset there because of Memphis's defense. I, I just and their length. 
I, I think it's going to be a real challenge. If you're a Purdue fan, you're rooting hard for our, our boy Dusty May in Florida Atlantic. Yep. Hey, by the way, too, in the last 30 minutes, Jaden Taylor, the sophomore from Perry Meridian that played for Butler, um, was was at times spotty, but I think was uh, showed enough where I think Butler people are going to be upset because apparently he is jumping into the transfer portal. He is portaling. I I, yeah, I thought I saw this morning that was going to be a possibility, yeah. and that's, I you know, I get it. I get it for kids that want a better opportunity elsewhere or feel like they're going to be more at home elsewhere, but this is going to be, you know, it's like North Carolina. North Carolina is not going to the NIT partially because who knows how many of the guys that play for North Carolina, they're like, look, I'm not, once the season's over, half of them are probably looking elsewhere, right? And, and in North Carolina's case, it's to go play 82 games a year, but. Right, I mean, let's think about Florida Atlantic, though. Florida Atlantic, if they, they have a nice run, if they play well, uh, how many of their players? And, you know, I've talked to Dusty enough to know that he believes they're going to hang around. you got lots of guys that are coming back. Yeah, maybe not so much. I mean, look at those two clowns from Northwestern. What, Ryan Young and, oh. and Pete Nance? Yeah, Pete Nance. I mean, I guess Ryan Young because Duke and where they're playing now, but Pete Nance, imagine that. You go from Northwestern, go to North Carolina, get these visions of greatness, and you're going to be playing in the backyard coming up in the next couple of weeks. So, Well, look at look at last year. I mean, St. St. Peter's, for crying out loud. I mean, the, the kid with the mustache got a BW3 NIL deal and then transferred, and this year he averaged four a game for Bryant. You know? I mean, <laughs> right for the iron top. Well, I mean, their, their coach left, too. That was part of – of their no, issue. Hey, by the way, Arizona, I have Arizona, Purdue. I've got Purdue going to the Final Four. Arizona, yeah, Purdue. Cool. I've got Texas, and I've got Gonzaga. And I have Arizona and Gonzaga. you got the former assistant battling yeah, in cool. Tommy Lloyd, Mark Few, and Mark Few. I, I think this is like the maybe fourth or fifth best team Mark Few has had the past 10 years. And I think because everything is so even, this is the year where they finally break through and yeah. win it. Look out for Arkansas and Auburn both to make a little havoc. Look out for Arkansas if you have your camera phone out, too, because somebody's going to grab that thing and toss it into the stands. Watch out. That was awesome. I did see that. (laughs) What do you got tomorrow, buddy? It was his assistant. Yeah. I think it was the basketball director of operations or some crap, so whatever. What, What do you guys got tomorrow? Uh, actually, tomorrow, I think the guy that's joining you right now is going to join us as well, um, Bruce Weber. And nice. I think on Wednesday, we're going to be talking um, head basketball coach at Kent State. So, might be talking about – Oh, little Rob Senderoff. Yeah, that'll make everybody around here happy. Everybody around here loves him. I know. He's I know. A, I think- he's got a big fan base here. Are you going to tell him that? Uh, that's going to be on Wednesday. I, there's probably former coworkers of ours that would have some say about that too. But, Rob, uh, Yeah, Rob Senderoff doesn't have a big fan base down here. No, I, I totally understand. Nor does Kelvin Sampson, right? But um, <laughs> we'll, see, uh, we'll see what happens for Indiana's path. But tomorrow we'll be talking plenty about uh, the tournament and then obviously keeping an eye on uh, Kevin. I'll be watching closely what happens in terms of free agency and who the Colts might be looking at or, or losing. Or not paying attention to at all. That, that too, yeah. <laughs> Good to hear from you, buddy. I appreciate it. Tell Shannon I missed a call on Saturday. I don't know what know. happened. We're, you guys are out and about here locally and not a – what a damn phone call, man. Get come up there, actually, but she was hell-bent on parking at Cityway. So. I thought she was mad because I didn't play Triumph. <laughs> she does love Triumph. Oh, yeah. All Anything bro- that involves Aquanet also. All, about. <laughs> all right, brother. Tell her I said hello. We'll talk to you again soon. I will right, we'll do.